Very good. Thanks, Jason. My name's Tim. I'm an alcoholic and an Al-Anon. Um, and uh, I know some people are driving or cooking or doing other other things uh, have legitimate reasons to have a camera off. If I can see a few faces, it helps because I can see the people I'm talking to. Otherwise, I'm just talking to a black hole. So thanks to those of you who've put, put your cameras on. So, um, yeah, we're covering the steps over the course of a year. We've done steps one and two. Um, now, if you haven't been to the others, uh, well, you probably know a little bit about steps one and two, but I'm going to intro by talking about my take and experience on those. Also, the, the, this workshop was uh, initiated at the instigation of some people in the uh, uh, sex fellowships. Um, so I'm going to look at that particular topic as well, what turning one's will and life over to God means in the area of uh, sex and, I was going to say sex and love, and as a fellowship, sex and love addicts, anonymous or something like that. And I'm not sure love, love is the problem. <laughs> I think something else is the problem there. But that's, a, we'll come to that. Don't worry. <laughs> so step one is um, my mind doesn't work properly. It tells me that a drink is a good idea. It tells me that a drug is a good idea. Uh, it tells me that a romantic entanglement is the pathway to happiness. It tells me that if I have enough sex or sex of the right sort, there'll be a loud pop and my life will seem more bearable. Um, what else? Uh, my mind tells me that everything I'm feeling is your fault. So you need to be controlled so that I feel differently. Because it sure as hell isn't my fault. <laughs> so you need to get sober, buddy. <laughs> That's the Al-Anon insanity. There are lots of other insanities in Al-Anon. I think we're blessed in Al-Anon because we can be insane in so many different ways on the same day. We're much more versatile and flexible than dull old addicts who just want the next high. Is it, is it, you have to have a bit of imagination to be an Al-Anon. Uh, step two, what does step two say? It says, I'm not going to think this through. If I were going to think this through, I would have thought this through. I'm still unhappy. So let's stop thinking it through. I'm going to quote something. I'm not going to tell you who it's from um, for, for lots of different reasons, but I'm going to quote something if I can find the thing. Um, I'll quote it in a minute. My software's not updating. Uh, give me a minute. Uh, yes, the idea that I'm not going to solve, I'm not going to solve my own problems. I can't solve my own problems. And no other human beings can solve my problems too. It's very, very important. People in AA can't fix me. AA meetings, AA groups can't fix me. Uh, oh, here's the, here's the quotation. Someone saying, this is the attitude he adopts. He says, I'm the stupidest person ever. I acknowledge this very fast. I'm at the bottom, too stupid. I'm not going to figure this out on my own. 
my own. Let's look for help. Not only that, let's apply the help and let's not analyze or think or judge, maybe this is not for me. Give it a shot and test it out. That's what I did. I went to everyone and I went up to them fully open-minded. I'm like, tell me what you know. And I would just suck it in like there's a vacuum inside me. All the content, all the value, and I would immediately implement it. There was nothing I wouldn't try. There's nothing I would judge saying, I don't know about that idea. No, you're too stupid. Try it. Don't judge it. You're too stupid to judge it. Try it. And then guess what? I went to more and more people. I started to apply what they said and I started changing and I kept moving up. And that was my attitude when I was new in AA. I'm too stupid to understand what is good for me. So I'm going to ask someone who is doing better than me. And when they tell me what to do, you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to do it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to talk to all my friends. And, I've just had this advice. What shall I do with it? No, I just did it. I'll give you an example. You want step three? Here's step three. When I was about eight months sober, physically sober, this was in 1994. Um, uh, I went on a date. Now that sounds ever so nice, doesn't it? But you know, bottle of wine, I was sober, but yeah, it sounds like a bottle of wine, you know, spaghetti carbonara. It wasn't a date. I met someone in a bar, I went back with them afterwards, date my foot. Anyway, um, there were shenanigans uh, back at the gentleman's abode. And the next morning I felt awful partly because of what we'd done and partly because of his, uh, the way he was interacting with me, the things he said. I just, the, the whole thing left, a, a, left me feeling very depressed and worried and I didn't like the situation at all. And I phoned Maureen. Uh, now, I, I ditched all the professionals at this point, all of them. And I'd gone to the happy people. None of the professionals I saw ever seemed very happy. They all looked very worried. They looked worried and depressed when I walked into the room. They looked even more worried and even more depressed when I'd finished telling them all my problems. Maureen was happy. I made the decision in AA to find people who are happy and cheerful and whistling. So what shall I do? Then I would do it. So I went to Maureen, I explained the whole sorry situation. And she said, take the phone number, which you've got written on your little piece of paper, and you throw it away. And you don't memorize the number before you throw it away. Can you do that? And I did it. I didn't even ask why. I just did it. She was absolutely right. I had no business interacting with this particular person in particular at this particular point in my recovery. Uh, when I was a few weeks, when I was a few weeks sober, um, uh, so back in 1993, I, I said to people, I've got a terrible problem. And they said, well, I said, I haven't got any money. And they said, oh, we've got, got a solution for that. <laughs> get a job. And I said, I don't know how to get a job. Wrong, wrong thing to say. <laughs> or right thing to say, I said, I, I'm too stupid. I don't know how to get a job. So they, they gave me a piece of paper, they wrote an address and they said, go to this address. It was a, a temporary work agency. 
It's an agency where you get temporary work. They gave me the address. They said, go to this place, 6.30 in the morning, next Monday. 6.30 in the morning. I didn't live in inner London. I lived way out. I had to get up very early to get to this place in Cannon Street at 6.30. And I went there and I stood in a little queue. I was the only person that spoke English in the queue, apparently. Um, and uh, they, I got to the front of the queue. They said, are you willing to, uh, do you have any work experience? I said, well, I worked in, in it in a cafe for a couple of months. Well, I didn't tell them as I'd stolen from the owner of the cafe and from the other staff. But anyway, I gave them part of the truth. I had worked at a cafe and they said, right, go to this address and they'll give you something to do. And I went to this address and all day I buttered bread and made sandwiches and did some other things. And then at the end of the day, they gave me a little envelope, little brown envelope, with money in it, money, would you believe? I didn't have to do anything for this money, well, except work. Uh, throughout none of this process did I question the information that was coming down the tubes. I just found someone suitable to get the information from. I said, what, I don't know, I don't know the answer to this. You tell me what to do. And I did it, and I did it promptly. Whenever I adopt that attitude, I do very well in recovery. As soon as I start thinking about uh, what I think about the information coming down the tubes, I am stuffed. Now, imagine you go into your kitchen, and I've had this experience, not in the UK, but in in uh, when I was living in Russia, God help me, uh, in the early 90s, cockroaches everywhere. Um, some of them, these sort of monstrous post-nuclear apocalypse cockroaches, the sort that would survive the end of civilization, those sorts of... You'd open a drawer and they'd all... <laughs> run to the back of the drawer and disappear between things. Oh, they're marvellous little things. Anyway, if you... <laughs> If you called in the exterminator to exterminate these cockroaches, you'd be an idiot to stoop down and ask the little cockroaches what they think of the fact that you have just called in a cockroach exterminator. The cockroaches would not approve of your plan they would not like your plan if they could speak, and they probably can speak, if they can survive a nuclear apocalypse. I'm sure they can communicate if they put their minds to it. They would try to dissuade you from your plan of action. Now, you see, <laughs> I'm not always I'm not always smart enough to be stupid. Sometimes I'm stupid enough to be smart. So when information comes down the tubes, uh I don't just accept it and implement it. I ask myself what I think about the information that's just come down the tubes. In other words, I'm asking the problem what it, the problem, thinks about the solution. The problem is never going to approve of the solution because the solution will destroy the problem. The problem wants to survive. The problem, my 
effed thinking, my broken thinking, it's like it's it. People talk about the disease. People talk about the addiction. People talk about my alcoholism. People talk about the ego. People talk about or did talk about the devil. Now, you're not allowed to say that in meetings. If you start talking about the devil, they'll have a group conscience meeting and some very tall people will come to you at the end of the meeting asking you not to talk about the devil. So if you want to talk about the devil, talk about the ego instead. Everyone will think you're very spiritual, but it's the same thing. Now, this it's characterized as being like this kind of monster that wants to kill you. Not far off the truth. Now, it's part of your own mind. It's not really there as a separate entity. But one must treat it as such. One must treat this entity as not having your best interests at heart because it doesn't. It is concerned with its own survival and the perpetuation of its role as Lord Grand Champion and Master of Everything, the captain of knowing things, the creator of you and the last resort of succor when problems arise. It's enjoying its position. It's the hand of the king. And it's also the king's mother at the same time. It's deadly. Uh, Sister B M would say your head would kill you. Uh, uh, even though it uh, your, your head, that's it. Your head would kill you if it didn't need you for transportation. And someone commented a few years later, no, your head will kill you even though you need it for transportation. So when I'm looking for input from a higher power through people in AA, through the literature, through spiritual resources, through whatever it is, I've got to be very, very careful to, first of all, take my ego offline. In other words, I can't stop the engine from running, but I can unhook I can put the clutch down and unhook the, en the, the engine from the transmission and the wheels. So the ego is no longer driving my vehicle. The engine is still turning over, but it's no longer driving my actions, my beliefs and my actions. And the way to do this is a great line in step three in the 12 and 12, where it says, says something to the effect of... Um, you know, this theory of, well, I shall decide what is good for me. I am an independent grown-up and I, I am thinking very good and interesting things and I shall decide what to do. It's a nice theory, very nice theory. Well done, good theory. How well is it working for you? One look in the mirror should be enough and you look in the mirror and you look at the sad little face looking back at you with the great big black rings under the eyes and the sort of tired, worried... <laughs> tired worried creases on each side of your face and you think okay something something's going wrong here something's not working in a course in miracles uh complete the steps first but anyway i'm going to quote from a course in miracles uh it says if you're unhappy uh you've decided wrong if you're not at peace you've decided wrong and it's, it's very cleverly sets this out. It says, um, you can't make decisions on your own. You can't think anything on your own. 
In other words, when you think something, when you assess a situation, you need a guide. Now, it doesn't feel that that is happening. It feels like you're just thinking things. But there's the world over there, and then there's a means of interpreting the world. And that means, almost like a little processing unit, gives you your interpretation of the world. So between me and the world is a little box in my brain, as it were, which interprets what is going on and delivers to me, the recipient, the story, the narrative about what is going on and how I ought to live and what I ought to do and what I ought to think. I'm not thinking. I'm being thought at by the box, by the processing unit. I'm receiving a set of messages. Now, what the course says and what the program says, what any spiritual path says is, you don't have to listen to that set of voices or that voice. There is another voice you can listen to, but you've got to first of all recognize, if I don't like how I feel, I've got to question the voice I'm listening to. Uh, next point, if I'm unhappy, I really hope I've been wrong. I've been listening to the wrong voice and that voice I've been listening to is incorrect in its perception of the universe, in its perception of what is going on. I really, if I'm not, if I'm right, if I'm unhappy and I'm right, buckle up because nothing is going to change. You're going to stay unhappy until you're wrong. My, sponsor, my first sponsor said to me, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? So if I'm unhappy and I want to become happy, I need to become wrong first. And once I become wrong, I recognize it would be in my best interests to look at this situation differently. It would be in my best interests to think about this situation differently. Uh, and once you've sufficiently detached, you can then say, right universe show me a different way to look at this then you're as we say cooking with gas you're 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 doing you can achieve something i'll give you a very good example of this um most of you look as though you'd probably live in what's called the west even if you're a long way east it's still called the west um and for any of you who are not in the west or not familiar with it we have this very modern notion in the West of something called a career. I don't know if you've heard of one. Everyone tells you your whole life, it's very, very important to have one. And if you haven't got one, there's something very, very wrong with you. What's a career? It's, uh, it seems to be, a, as far as I can tell, I'm no expert on this. I've just observed it happening. It's this course through life where you have to do something called achievement. Uh, you have to be better than other people. You have to be going higher and higher. You have to be earning more and more money. You have to be continuously professionally developing yourself. You have to be open to feedback. You have all sorts of things. And there are these websites you can go to which help you with your career. And I don't know if you've ever met anyone in their 50s who has a career. They're usually very, very stressed and unhappy and talking about all the worries and the burdens of their career. <laughs> it's dreadful. It's a dreadful thing. Um, now, I work. 
I, in other words, I do things and people give me money, but I don't have a career. When I had a career, I used to get, <laughs> don't, this isn't facetious, it's literally true. I used to get hepatitis a lot. I literally, I got hepatitis A and hepatitis B in one year. My body was saying no in a really big way to the way I was living under a huge amount of pressure, really attached to money, to power, to prosperity, to success, to advancement, to um, the outcomes of what I was doing, to the quality of my performance, to the perception of my employees, to the perception of my shareholders and other directors. Um, I was spinning 100 plates. And if you spin enough plates, some are going to start to smash. And if your happiness depends on the plates not smashing, you're gonna be very stressed. I was incredibly stressed waking up at four o'clock in the morning with panic attacks. There's a line from a Game of Thrones where one of the characters says, um, even the best juggler can't keep a hundred plates spinning at once. So I recognized that uh, number one, even I realized I was unhappy for a while, after a while. I didn't realize how unhappy I was. I just thought this is the price of being successful. This is the price of having a career. I just need to battle through for another few years and then I will come out at a point where I'm calm and relaxed and confident. I'm in the office right now and I work with seven other people. Now they're not in the same business as me. They just happen to have desks next to me. We're sharing this space. And then they're very nice people. I like them a lot. But the senior ones who are in their who are who are my age, they're they're in their 50s. I was talking to one of them, they're very, very successful. I was talking to one of them, and he thinks about work all the time. He thinks about work in the evenings. He thinks about work when he's at work. He thinks about work all weekend. He's stressed about work. He's coping with it very well, apparently. <laughs> I don't envy him at all. He's got a career, you see. Now, I don't have a, I, I decided many years ago, I don't like, I don't, I can't live like that any longer. So what I do, I, I decided to, I'm, I do the same thing as I did 20 years ago for work. But I no longer have a career. I decided to look at it differently. I asked for a different way to look at it. What was the different way? Different way is, um, I work for my higher power now. I don't work for other people. I don't work for agencies. I don't work for you. Uh, spiritual Paul used to say, it's better to be a people pleaser, a God pleaser. It's better to be a God pleaser than a people pleaser because there's only one of him. And also God is a bit simple. God is very easily pleased. God is pleased if I make an effort. Most people out there, they're not pleased if you make an effort. When, when a British person says to you, if you're not British, you won't get this straight away, so I'll have to explain it. When a British person says to you, it's very clear you've made a very substantial effort with this piece of work. Now, if you're, if you're not, not British, you'll think, oh, I'm being praised for this. If you're British, you'll realize it's a pile of cack. 
but they're introducing their criticism by saying, by acknowledging how much effort you put into it. No one gives it anything, gives a damn about effort. You don't get paid for effort in the world. You get paid for results. But I don't work for the world. I work for my higher power. And my higher power is pleased with effort. So I, as I say, I don't have a career. I, tomorrow morning, I'll be coming into this particular place and the higher power will send me things to do, tasks to perform, mostly typing. So when people say, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a typist. That's what I do. I type. And because I type, people give me money. So I'm a typist. And um, money is marvellous. I look at my bank account on my computer. Money keeps coming out. What, why? Because I'm typing. So all I have to do is type and then money comes in. I've learned how to look at this differently. And I have little lapses back into thinking I've got a job or a career or something. And I don't. I just I've got some a few little things to do <laughs> amongst all the other things. And I was willing to look at this different. I, I know almost no one else that looks at the world of work the way I do. Uh, and, and this is not supposed to work. You're told by the world, unless you unless you have a dream, you can't have a dream come true. You've got to be, what do they say on LinkedIn? You've got to be passionate about solutions or something like that. You, you, you've got to be emotionally invested. If you're not passionate about solutions and perfectionist, you know, in job interviews, when they say, what's your greatest flaw is a well, you know, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. <laughs> and all sounds great, but you take one look in the mirror. This doesn't work. I'll give you another example. Is um, uh, romance thinking that, oh, I love him and he loves me and we're going to be happy because we've got love now. Love, love, lovely love. What's a lovely love is going to keep us warm and, and, and resolve my disordered personality because now I'm loved. And what I didn't have enough love when I was a child. So, but now I'm loved. I'm going to be all right. So do you love me? You love me. Do you love me as much as I love you? You're holding hands on the sofa saying, no secrets, eh? No secrets anymore between us. We're one. Remember that thing in Plato? As soon as you're quoting Plato, you think you're, you know, must be true. Of course, you haven't read the actual Plato. You just heard someone talking about, but, you know, people who are in love, they're two parts of the same soul who've become one now. And then you're going to be together forever. Oh, it's so nice. Divorce. That's what happens to other people. Won't happen. It would never happen here. It's not going to happen to us because we're in love. <laughs> Wind that tape on. It doesn't work. The model doesn't work. It's got nothing to do with majority or consensus or theory. It's got to do with what works. The first two steps are about identifying what doesn't work. Why? Because you're unhappy. That's how you know it doesn't work. <laughs> if you're happy, you don't need to be here. Unless you'll become happy through this process and you're here to help show other people what changed in you. But you know what I mean? If you're coming here desperate for help, something has gone wrong. So step three is, for me, about recognizing that my, again, from the 12, the 12 and 12 is, is 
that there's been a big swing from the over the last 30 years in AA from the 12 and 12 to the big book. It's very, and, and I think that's right because the instructions are in the big book. But there's a danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There's an awful lot, which is very, very good in the 12 and 12. And one of the important lines in the 12 and 12, our scorecards read zero. So to let something in, you've got to create an empty space for the new thing to come in. And the empty space, it talks about it on page 58. Um, uh, the result was nil with regard to our old ideas. The result was nil until we let go absolutely. And the funny thing is, I keep having to, it, it's like having a haircut. You have to have a haircut if you still have hair. Um, uh, you have to have a haircut on a regular basis because it keeps growing. The old beliefs keep growing. Particularly if you, if you live in a community, which is a genuinely spiritual community, there are people that live in you know, islands in Scotland where they're surrounded by people who are on a spiritual path. And so there are exceptions to this in the world. There are, there, there are countries where arguably people are a little less insane than they appear to me to be in the West. But you're going to be affected. And so the ego needs a haircut. It needs to be shaved back to, you know, military buzz cut. You can't get rid of it completely, but it has to be shaved back on a regular basis. And it's amazing how little one needs to know or believe to get through the day and the week and the month and the year and indeed a lifetime. Um, all I need to know, and there are lots of plates spinning in my life, all I need to know is I get into the office at quarter to seven tomorrow morning and I look at the things which are to be done in the day and then I do them. And when I get to somewhere between six and seven o'clock and that's work and some other obligations. Once I get to six, I don't leave before six. I don't leave after seven. I go home and then I forget all about it. Trusting God means forgetting all about it. I don't need any thoughts about my life. All I need to know is what address to show up at tomorrow morning. I've got lists of things that might need doing on my computer. I look at those lists tomorrow, ask God to guide my thinking, construct a list, get on with it. I don't need to assess anything. I don't need to evaluate anything. I stopped watching the news a long time ago. You know what the funny thing is? I know more about current affairs than most people around me. There are a couple of people that know significantly more, but it's amazing. You realize your knowledge of what is going on is not coming from the media you're consuming. It's coming from somewhere else. I'm very careful. Of, I'm very, very careful about what I allow in to my mental space. And I wasn't people, you know, people say you have to be very open minded in recovery, not so open minded that any passing idiot can throw their trash in you as well. So I'm very careful what I allow in, empty the whole thing out, then erect a shield to make sure that you, I remain in charge of what gets put into my mind. And as I say, very little needs to be in there 
to navigate the day. One thing I've learned in the concepts, 12 concepts, so that the package deal that I have in recovery involves steps, traditions, and the concepts. And the, the philosophy of the concepts is, first of all, we are all part of a single whole. Secondly, we each have a job to do. Do our own job, not someone else's, but do do one's own job. What is one's own job? The tasks of the day. What are the tasks of the day? Number one, look after myself. Uh, I'm of no use to anyone else if I'm in a devil of a state myself. So I must look after myself physically, spiritually, mentally, socially, whatever, whatever other areas one has. Secondly, fulfill my obligations. I'm not called upon to, uh, as it were, run my life uh, or manage my life. I've got, I've got to be a good custodian, but that's different. I'm not managing the outcomes of my life. I'm there to act as a good custodian, performing one simple task after another. If I'm frightened, I perceive myself to be responsible for something which is outside my control and outside, therefore, my scope of responsibility. Fear is always a sign that I'm taking up too much space. There is something I'm attached to, which I cannot control, which is why I'm frightened. And I can't control it because it's not mine to control. So my job is to look after myself, to fulfill my obligations. So once a day, when we say in the morning, on awakening, we consider our plans for the day. First of all, you have to have plans to consider them. If the first thing you're doing is considering your plans, the plans have to be laid the night before. Otherwise, you have to devise the plans to start considering them. Follow me? So do the plan the night before. So when you're considering the plan in the morning being the first thing you're supposed to do, according to page 86, you have something to consider. A lot of people, I'm not going to name names, but you know who you are, have a tiny little bit of anxiety, just a tiny little bit, frightened, frightened, frightened. And very often people on a Sunday will be frightened about the week. I'm not because on Friday I did the plan. So now, I, once I've done my bit, my bit is to do the plan, and then I turn it over to God, and I do the plan under God's guidance. So end of Friday, I did a review and a plan for the following week, following work week. Forget about it all weekend. I'm not thinking about work this week. I'm talking about it now for a specific purpose, but I'm not thinking about it. I'm not worrying about it all weekend. So I'll quietly, quickly review the plan first thing tomorrow morning, make sure everything is still in place, see that nothing over the weekend has dislodged it, and then get on with it. And then when I finish, my, 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 my job is not to get everything to go well. My job is to dispose of my time uh, in the best way I can and to give my attention to the tasks at hand and then the results will be what they will be uh, I cannot give more than I can give again in the insanity in the work world or career world of 
It's always the joke about football managers. Yeah, our team, they gave 150%. And people talk about going the extra mile. No, I don't. I do what is allotted to me, then I stop. I'm trusting God. Because that was the deal that was offered. And uh, God is trustworthy. And I don't get ill anymore. I was ill the whole time in my 20s, sober in AA, but still very much run on self-will in work and ill the whole time. And I touch wood, I'm very rarely ill. Occasionally I come down with something, but not for long. It doesn't actually stop me functioning usually. I haven't had a day off work because of of, of illness in, in seven, seven or eight years, I think. Uh, my body is saying yes to the way I'm living my life. So no, I won't go the extra mile. The phone, go, the work phone goes off at seven in the evening, doesn't get answered at weekends. If they need someone to work at a weekend, they'll have to find someone else to do it. I'm no longer, I no longer serve people. I serve the higher power and the higher power is a good higher power. Doesn't require me to do more than is humanly reasonable. And then the third part, so first part of doing God's will is look after myself. Put your own oxygen mask on first. Second part, fulfill the obligations of the day. Third part, enjoy myself. My first sponsor, Doug, said, fill your life, decorate your life with pleasant things. So what I'm being asked to exchange is a life guided by the old thinking mechanisms, which left me uh, well, drunk and drugged for many years. And then after that, fraught and frantic because I couldn't get my own way. Um, I'm being asked to exchange that for a very simple program where I get to be an idiot all day, every day, where I know nothing, nothing, but what is the next thing to do? Then I get on with that. Um, step three in practice. Um, in the 12 and 12, it talks about uh, turning your will and your life over to God being apparently a very, very abstract thing. And it says it's not abstract at all. Uh, it's very practical. And what it involves is willingness. And then it very carefully goes on to detail what willingness is. And it's very simple. It's where I discard my old ideas in favor of new ones. And I discard my old actions in favor of new ones. Ideas and actions, or if you will, attitudes and actions, A and A, AA, attitudes and actions, get rid of the old ones. Why? They don't work. In favor of what? New ones. Where do I get them? I don't care. Try any ones. They can't possibly be worse than yours. If it doesn't work, go on to the next one. There's always someone else. So that original quotation of the chat that I was quoting. Same thing, just try something, try anything, really anything. Um, something um, my sponsor said to me once is, 
the well-intentioned advice, the well-intentioned but incorrect advice of a good sponsor is never worse than the best you, you can come up with on your own. I think that's about right. If I look at all the times I've had to make amends in my life, not once have I had to make amends because of an action an AA member instructed me to take. Every single thing I've had to make amends for, I had the idea of doing the thing that I did every single time. So there's very, very little risk in step three, really. If you're if you're effed anyway, there's no risk. Um, my sponsor also talked about page 53 of the big book. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God was everything or God was nothing. Uh, what was our choice to be? And I said, why does it say fearlessly? He said, in those um, war films where our heroes are cornered by the enemy and they're overrun by the enemy and they decide to, to go out fighting rather than just waiting to die, they run out of the fort or fortress or wherever they are uh, with a battle cry in their throats, completely fearless because they're going to die anyway, so there is nothing to lose. And so with a real understanding of step one, that you're going to die anyway if you don't do something, it starts to matter far less what you do, um, more the fact you must do something which is not of your own devising. And then if it's wrong, promptly admit it, go on to the next thing, but it will always contain a necessary lesson. Um, but the main thing is to get on with it. Now, it talks also about willingness. Um, willingness being not the destruction of your own will, but the bringing of your will into line with God's. Um, so it's like the ego is giving me is proposing to me a set of ideas and values and attitudes and beliefs by which I'm to navigate the world. God is offering me an entirely different set of beliefs and values and attitudes by which to negotiate the world. What is self-will? Self-will is directing my will towards what the ego suggests. So this is not about crushing my will. It's about redirecting my will from the ego's objectives of sex, money, power, prestige, comfort, thrills, and appearance to God's values of being cheerful, useful, and kind. So, as I said, this is not about destruction of will. It's about redirection of will. And how is will applied? Uh, it's at the level, as I said, of attitudes and actions. How do I apply to the level of attitudes? Uh, whatever I tell myself, I'm reinforcing its truth. Uh, to worry is to meditate on the wrong thing. To worry is to reinforce the negative thinking. The only way to get rid of worry and anxiety is to substitute something else. So every single time I say, um, uh, of the things which are troubling me in my life or can trouble me in my life when I'm having a bad day. God is looking after me. God will take care of my finances. 
my family, my future. Find, and those are the three things. There are specific areas within those which are uh, uh, um, particular topics of, of anxiety for me. But uh, family, finances, future. God is looking after those. Every time I affirm, as long as I keep my nose clean and do the next right thing and pay attention and ask for help, my finances will sort themselves out. My family will sort itself out. My future will sort itself out. If I repeat that again and again and again and apply that and live in accordance with that, the truth of it starts to appear to me to be true. Whatever I affirm becomes the world that I'm living in. And then my experience starts to demonstrate that it is true. So the ideas that come down the tube, so that very simple idea behind step three, if I do my part, part of the bargain, if I look after myself, keep my nose clean, do the next right action, keep my focus on the moment, pay attention, admit my faults, tell the truth, ask for help, everything will work itself out. And those few things which do not work themselves out, I will be given the grace to rise above with cheerfulness and laughter. Every time I affirm that and live in accordance with that, it reinforces it. If I analyze those ideas before trying to apply them, I will destroy them before they're given a chance to germinate and flower and propagate in my life. So I substitute, uh, I deliberately reject old ideas. I deliberately take on board ideas by treating them as true. And this is by authority, not argument. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Sometimes you're talking to sponsees and you're trying to, you, you're presenting a new way of looking at it. And the sponsee tries to argue with it because they don't, as they put it, understand it. And the fact is, of course you can't. If you haven't been born, you can't understand. If you're a fetus inside a womb, you can't understand what it is like to be outside the womb. But you can you could take the word of someone who has managed to emerge from the womb as to what is true out there. If you if if you've never been to France, well, I pity you. But anyway, if you've never been to France and someone tries to explain France to you in any way or French life or the French or Paris or French food, you won't understand any of it. But if they've been there, you take it to be true. And then you go and you find out for yourself what was true and what wasn't true. It, so this it's by authority that I choose to believe something. If you have a geometry teacher or, or even better, an algebra teacher, and the algebra teacher tells you that your answer is wrong, the answer is actually X or Y or 3 or 7 or 19 or something. Uh, you take it to be true because he or she is the geometry teacher before you come to understand it. Then you do the work systematically, and then you go, aha, now I, now I understand that it is true. But to do the work, you do the work based on the proposition that what the teacher is saying is true because they're the teacher. So I'm presented with the, these ideas in AA. I'm to take them to be true. I don't need to convince my ego that they are true. It 
can't be convinced. So stop trying. When I'm trying to understand something that someone in AA says, when I'm trying to understand a sponsor, what I'm really doing is get, I'm saying to the sponsor, give me ammunition so that I can have a little word with my ego and then get it on our side. And you cannot get the ego on your side. Its purpose is to deny, deny God as your creator, to position itself as your creator, dependent on it for your survival. It is not going to co-sign its own destruction. Not going to happen. So stop trying to do it. Stop using yourself as a mouthpiece for your ego to get your sponsor to argue with your ego so you don't have to take responsibility for making the decision about which team you want to play for. So you just redirect to the team. I mean, go over to the winning side, really. <laughs> That's all you're being asked to do. Go over to the winning side and just get on with it. Um, the application of step three is simply to get on with the remaining, uh, well, the remaining six steps of the transformation process to engage in steps 10, 11 and 12 on a daily basis as a way of life through concerted action. Uh, one thing I've got a lot of sponsees, much to their chagrin, currently doing is a daily plan and a daily review. I don't really care what you write, person writes on there. Uh, it's the fact of doing it which matters. It's, it's taking the action. The quality comes later. Get the action in place, then work on the form and gradually work on the content. And um, progress is absolutely inevitable. Uh, the only thing one can do in AA wrong is to stand still completely. Uh, by taking action, you can't get it wrong. You'll make horrible mistakes. A friend of mine says about learning a foreign language, hurry up and make your first 10,000 mistakes. Uh, you can't avoid them. Uh, don't try and hold yourself back until you know how not to make the mistakes because you, you will never learn that way. Recovery is the same. I've got to get out there and live and get it horribly wrong, get my fingers burned, but, but continue to apply the program. Um, I said I was going to mention something briefly about um, the, the, the essay stuff, and I'll, I'll bring the SLA stuff in. And also Al-Anon as well. So, so uh, with AA, it's, it's very simple. Uh, you know, stay away from drink, stay away from drugs, rebuild your life. With Al-Anon, it's a bit more complicated. What, what is the path I'm on? The path I'm on in Al-Anon is learning, number one, to look after myself. That's what the steps are taking me towards. Number two, to stop controlling things which are none of my business. Number three, to stop caretaking people, uh, preventing them from hitting their rock bottoms, preventing them from facing the consequences of their actions. And number four, to stop blaming others for how I feel or seeking for others to rescue me. So I'm taking responsibility for myself. I'm stopping taking responsibility for you. I'm letting you take responsibility for you. And uh, I'm no longer making you responsible for me. With, with the uh, so-called sex and love stuff, um, uh, and this is this is a view 
There are other views as well. And there are, uh, I'm familiar with at least four different fellowships for people with S problems. And maybe there need to be that many fellowships because a wide range of views is legitimate in this contentious area. But um, uh, my view uh with the with the sex stuff is that uh in in the big book what it talks about is some people would have us on a uh, would have us no flavor for our fare others would have us on a straight pepper diet in other words one extreme view is that all sex is very very bad there shouldn't be any sex at all this is in the world generally the other view is that we should, as it were, let it all hang out and do what we want with whoever we want and everything is good and everything is fine and we live life around sex and, you know, sex and more sex, marvellous, these opposing views. And this notion of the, the straight pepper diet, uh, someone said to me once, pepper is not one of the food groups, it is a condiment and not every meal needs a condiment. And sex for me has gone from being one of the uh, secret pillars of my life to being, <laughs> dare I say, an occasional inconvenience. It's, I'm married, and I have to say, although sex as part of the marriage is, it is, it is one of the things which has been part of the marriage. I, it's probably not even top 50 most important things in the marriage. Really, I have to tell you that. There we go. Just between you and me and the people listening to this damn tape. But seriously, I think my other half would agree on this. <laughs> you try, try explaining that to someone in SLA in their 20s, that, that sex is not uh, the even an important part of the relationship, the closeness between the two people is the important thing. The building of a common vessel. Um, and everything I thought about romance and love, it wasn't love, it was these, I, I didn't have love before I got to AO. This is why the term sex and love addicts is for me a little bit misleading uh you see i wasn't after sex with the sex addiction stuff i was after a high in my brain with the love stuff i wasn't after love i was after these bizarre exchanges where i would take my internal degradation which i'd covered up with a sheen of glamour i'd give the glamour to you and think well i shall get the glamour back from you, I would find people who I thought were glamorous and interesting. And we would exchange our specialnesses. Well, if I tell you you're special to me, you will tell me I'm special to you. And you both get home and you unwrap the present that the other person has given you. And inside the present of this lovely silver gold paper is a dead rat. And you feel incredibly shortchanged, but you know you have shortchanged them. You've given them the dead rat of your non-functioning life in the hope that you put two broken people together and make one whole person. <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, I knew I'd shortchange people. I couldn't face 
the fact I'd done that. So I needed to, and then have you noticed in a relationship, you know, your first six months, they can do nothing wrong. Two years later, you've noticed everything that was wrong with them. Everything that was wrong with them was there on the first day, on the first date, all there on the surface. You didn't want to see it because you wanted to, to have this exchange where you tricked them into accepting you by showing them your good side so that you could steal the specialness back from them. This, whatever that is, <laughs> has got nothing to do with relationships. It's got nothing to do with love. It's got nothing to do with romance. And that precise dynamic is the dynamic that you can have with a career, with a talent, with an organization that you work for, with an AA group, in some people, it just happens to be in romance. I've had it in lots of different areas. It's a specialness exchange. And so what, what I'm going for, what I'm in taking step three in the area of, of so-called sex and love or sex and relationships, I'm not remolding something. I'm getting rid of a whole way of being which doesn't work and being given an entirely new way of being in apparently in that same area, but sex when I was in my uh, were using years versus after recovery, love in my using years versus after recovery, they're two entirely different things which superficially are in the same areas. But it's just like with drinking alcohol, drinking vodka and having a meal. Yes, they both involve ingestion, but there's really nothing in common between the two. And it's the same with the sex and the romance stuff. And one of the rather disastrous things, if you've known, if you had sponsees in, in Sly, you'll know this. It's all very good until you start getting to step six, seven, eight, and they start saying, when can I start dating again? Can I start dating again? Where's my dating plan? I want to date. When can, oh God, and the whole thing starts up again. And it's like the alcoholics, when can I start drinking again? Because the people's idea of what dating is, it's just a sanitized version of what they were doing before. It's not a fundamentally new thing. Um, my first, the first person I had a, a relationship with, and I'll finish on this, Jason, then we got, I've got a few minutes for, for questions and answers if, if there are indeed any questions. The first proper relationship I had with someone when I got sober, it, well, after I got sober, was lasted for about eight years and we grew apart and uh, we're still very, very good friends. It's obviously over 20 years ago since that relationship came to an end. But we got to know each other for, I think, three months uh, as friends before there was the remotest mention or notion of some physical aspect to the relationship. Three months. And it wasn't, oh, I, you know, I can't wait and look at my little schedule. Oh, in 10 weeks, I'm going to be able to make the move. There was no notion of that. The job was to get to know the human being, to see if, is this a human being that has values that I respect? It's a completely different approach. It is not, it's not in the same area of human activity as what I called dating when I was drinking. And that's the whole thing here. The whole, what I'm exchanging is one way of life for an entirely different way of life. Um, 
And I think that's what step three is about, but it is based on the admission of complete defeat and the recognition that this can't be fixed. It needs to be utterly transfigured. So um, Jason, what I'm gonna do, if I may, we'll, we'll keep recording on. If anyone wants to ask a question, be aware that the question will be recorded. If you don't want your voice to come onto this, that's understandable. So feel free to put your question in the chat. And so if we could have questions which are relatively short, that would be helpful as well. Does anyone have any questions? Suze, do you want to come in? G'day, Tim, g'day everyone. Um, no, I just wanted to mention that um, I've been a member of SLAA, and excuse me, throughout the book, except in the title, um, love is in inverted commas, and it's well explained that what, we, what we're talking about is not love, but romantic obsession. So they're onto it. That's all. <laughs> okay. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Michael. How much step work and recovery is too much step work and recovery where that becomes the next addiction? Okay, so that's, that's a very interesting question. By the way, Jason, if you could make me co-host as well, so I can, or if someone else could remove the hands once someone has asked the question, that would be helpful. So how, how much step work is too much step work? Um, if you've got a solid method for going through the steps, uh, solid but not obsessive compulsive. So there are methods of going through the steps where which don't set caps on the amount that you write. So I know there's, there's there are big book approaches where if you have 900 resentments, then you must write a sheaf about each resentment. And then, this, you know, I've I knew someone that had literally four ring binders of material on resentments. Uh, if you have a method which is efficient as well as effective, uh, you can't do too much because you'll run out of things to do fairly quickly. Uh, so when I've had um, sponsees who go at it with the steps very quickly, put a lot of time in every day, I think someone got through the first nine steps in about uh, six weeks. And then you're on to the next thing. You're on to sponsoring people. You're on to service. Uh, I have, obviously in step 12, we have conflicting uh, uh, pulls. One pull is towards uh, uh, homes, occupations and affairs and making sure that one is living the program in there. A second pull is towards uh, service and sponsorship and meetings and so on. And then there are other pulls of, of personal interests and development and, and looking after oneself. Um, um, Bob Darrell's very good on this. He says, just listen to the dogs barking. The dogs will tell you which one needs feeding the most. And you're constantly adjusting, which is why the notion of balance is, I think, the wrong image, because balance implies if you have a pair of scales, you have to have the same weight on either side. And this is not about establishing a particular weight of this and a weight of that, and then you've got it fixed forever. And you stick with that. It's dynamic equilibrium. In other words, you've got to be constantly, you have to ask each day, God, what do you want me to do today? And I'm constantly adjusting the trade-off between different things. Because, of course, uh, give us this day our daily bread. I'm only told in the very short term what to prioritize. And it gets to change the whole time. If I knew 
how to keep everything in balance, I wouldn't need God. But if I'm listening to the higher power and I'm honest with myself, then I, I get chosen. Um, Pavel, would you like to come in? Uh, thanks. Thanks, Tim, for, uh, for your workshop. And uh, I want to ask, uh, in the morning, I try to, to give my life over to the care of God. But during the day, many times happens that I run on self-will. How, how it, what is the best way to spot I'm, I'm on a self-will and uh, how, what to do practically to like get back on the track with God's will. Thanks. Uh, yeah, well, it's a, it's a constant, it's a constant thing for the rest of your life, unfortunately. Uh, the practice of step 10, page 84 of the big book, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. It's basically coming gently and persistently back to the task at hand. If I get, if I lose peace, I need to stop retreat, reconnect with the higher power, and then get on with it. And I've even done this. I did this this week with someone in a telephone call where I said, let's just both take 10 seconds, ask God to bring us back to a position of peace, and then we got on with the rest of the conversation. And the, the tone of voice of both of us changed. It actually doesn't take long to come back. If the intention is to come back to peace, uh, it can be done pretty quickly actually um samuel oh thank you tim very much for a workshop uh i want to ask um yeah you you told also also about this this career uh how it can uh be be problem and uh, i'm realizing that that i i have this uh some of uh, things like that uh, in my life, and I, for example, this my desires for career, I I give it to God, but but um, again and again, I want to take it back. Maybe what should I do? How can I really apply their step three? Very good question. So, um, in step eleven. It says on page 87, there are many useful books also. And I found uh, the author, Anthony DeMello, very helpful at helping me recognize that I'm betting on the wrong horse by betting on external things as a source of happiness. Uh, looking at external things as my source of value identity and purpose. Uh, you're working against very, very strong currents in society by rejecting the values you see around you. So it does require day, regular and daily work. What is most helpful though, if you sponsor a lot of people, you're expressing these ideas again and again and again. And there's something about expressing ideas to other people it convinces me more than when I'm trying to convince myself. There's something about the interaction with someone else which causes something to happen that doesn't, it's like you have to have more than one person to create an electrical circuit. There is something about the connection between people which draws down power from above, uh, which is why recovery has to be a group effort. Um, Barry. Hi. Um, my my question is: uh, Has your 
relationship with your higher power changed since you first took that tree? And if so, how? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, my relationship with my higher power changes about 18 times a day. Um, uh, Tom, Tom Weston has got a whole retreat he did, which was entitled, What Program? God Who? Um, he also talks about this Jesuit he knows, there's another, another Jesuit he knows who writes this very emotional poetry about Jesus. And he said to this Jesuit once, do you believe what you write? And the, the Jesuit said, about one day out of three. <laughs> and Tom said, well, that's very good. That's not bad, actually. So it comes and goes. I mean, it's, it's, it's like British weather. One minute it's sunny, the next minute it's hailing or Texas weather. Um, uh, it, it's a very unpredictable, volatile thing, the relationship with the higher power. Some people have got a relationship with the higher power. It's the same every day. I've never, I, well, we're all different, aren't we? But that's not my experience. Some days it's very easy. Other days it's not. Some years it's not, I have to say. Uh, if, if ever you lose heart, read the biography or a biography of St. Teresa of Avila. But she would go through periods of years, years of what she referred to as aridities or dryness, where she didn't feel the connection with God. But in the meantime, she founded a dozen monasteries. So she didn't sit on her behind waiting to you know, feel the right thing. She got on with it anyway. You continue to act as though God is there. And then the light comes back on. And this is not uncommon. R.S. The Welsh poet R.S. Thomas is very good on this. He says prayer is like throwing stones up at the window of the beloved and you carry on doing it even in your faithlessness because one day you thought you saw the curtain move. So those few times you get this extraordinary connection are actually because they you know they're real you don't stop trying even through a very long periods of apparently failing to connect. People mistake conscious contact with God for conscious cozy cuddles with God. And these are very, very different things. Conscious contact means I've got a very clear idea of what my moral obligations are in the world today. And that is not comfortable. If I fulfill those obligations, I might be comfortable but there might be psychological things going on. So not to measure my con my spiritual condition by how I feel, because how I feel is not a good measure of that. Uh, Peter, do you want to come in? Yeah, good day, Tim. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, my question is, uh, how do you go about... Uh, continuing to persist in honesty and continue to be working the program rigorously, even when you feel like uh, it starts to become weighty on you. What do you mean by weighty? So the, uh, at the start having just say like the motivation and the high of oh, I'm doing this 
and it's easy, but as, as it continues to progress, um, just say the motivation wears off and, uh, uh, what is it? There's the sense of, I guess you could say like the, the weight of the things that you've, uh, got to do to continue carrying on, to continue in sobriety. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, so I had two people talking once and one person said, well, life's very hard. And the other person said, compared to what? <laughs> so you see, the choice is not between doing the program and sitting on a cushion doing nothing. The choice is serving God or being a slave to the ego. You've got you can only choose between the available options. Um, Dennis F is good on this topic. He talks about, I think it's in, it would be in tradition eight, his tradition eight materials, where he says, he talks about zeal, not a very common word, zeal, uh, the same word from which we get zealot. There are times when you do the program out of active emotional enthusiasm. So because your emotions are enthusiastic, you act accordingly. Uh, but what you come back to, to get you through the times when you don't feel enthusiastic, what you have in as a safety net is obedience, uh, which is the decision to live a particular way because your cold, hard logic has told you that this is what is in your best interests. So the reason I decided to be obedient to the program was because I recognized intellectually it was in my best interests, uh, which means really how I feel long-term is being prioritized. A lot of recovery requires short-term pain to get long-term gain. And addiction is all about sacrificing long-term pain in order to get short-term gain in terms of thrills and comfort. Uh, Jason, do you want to come in? Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, great chair. Um, my question is, um, no one's done this program easy um, and no one sort of went, oh, I surrender. I give my whole life to God. Um, it's, you know, some most people have a bit of a struggle with that. Um, uh, my question is, you would have had, probably had the same sort of struggles um, if you like had the same sort of struggles. How did you get from fighting every inch of the way to the place of absolute surrender? Uh, it's a good question. The best answer is you try everything else first. Unfortunately, you have to try everything but absolute surrender until the only box left to open is absolute surrender. I wish there were a quick way. Um, I think the only thing which can accelerate the process is awareness. If you actively cultivate awareness of what works and what doesn't work and you're honest with yourself, you can massively accelerate the process. But I think one does need to go through the experience of trying all the things that doesn't that don't work because the investment in the ego is so deep. It's where everything started. Um, and that is the thing. You, you, 
you give that up when it's the only thing left to give up, I think is the answer. And uh, last question, Angelo. Thanks, Tim. Hey, thank you, Tim. Thank you for your workshop. Thank you. Uh, my question is, you said something um, at the beginning, about, it's about willingness, the willingness to ask and um, and then not arguing with my ego, but just doing it and um, or finding someone that is, suits me. It doesn't really matter who. Um, but I find myself sometimes, um, I don't know, asking too many people and looking for ways that are comfortable for me. So um, I don't know, maybe you have experienced uh, something about that, like um, how to practically approach this. Thank you. Yeah, very, very good. There's a, a phrase that gets used, uh, monkey see, monkey do. So the way monkeys learn how to do things is they watch another monkey doing something and then they copy it. Uh, but you've got to be very, there are lots of monkeys in AA, <laughs> but be careful which monkey you're imitating. So um, uh, you find someone that is, uh, this, these are my criteria, upbeat, cheerful, energetic, practical, sense of humor, feet on the ground. And you, you, uh, do consistently it's better to do consistently what one person says than inconsistently what half a dozen people say now sometimes i have had to, i have changed sponsor over the years but i've done so only with very great caution and after much thought it's not something to do lightly and to hop around emmett fox talks about a similar idea which is if you take a spiritual practice Really give it a go for a good three months to see if it helps or not. If it doesn't, uh, try another one. But don't chop and change between lots of different things on the same day. Uh, I do use different things from different spiritual sources, but they all seek to do the same thing. So different, different spiritual ideas, different readings I can be helpful as long as the philosophy, the basic philosophy behind them is the same. And I think it's, you know, in different fellowships, there are different streams, there are different, certainly Al-Anon has got two very distinct ways of doing things. Uh, and one's got to find one's own little tribe within recovery where the voices are pretty consistent. Then you're much less at risk of trying to match different approaches which don't work. So I hope that answers the question. Jason, I think we're out of questions. Do you want to close us off for today? Yep, I'm gonna stop the recording. Um.